wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. Welcome to the now playing Mad Max movie retrospective series. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Hosted by Jacob. I've seen the style before. Terminal psychotic. Stuart. I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. And Arnie. A burnt out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons in his past. This podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. You! You can run, but you can't hide! Listener discretion is advised. But this ain't one body's tell. It's the tell of us all. And you've got to listen it and remember. Because what you hear today, you've got to tell the newborn tomorrow. Today we're discussing The Road Warrior, starring Mel Gibson, Bruce Spence, Emil Minty, Michael Preston, Virginia Hay, directed by George Miller. This is your burned out, desolate shell of a podcast host, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is the Ayatollah of rock and rolla, Jacob. Did I watch the wrong movie then? Because I saw Mad Max 2. Yeah, mine said Mad Max 2, and I always remember The Road Warrior. I remember this called The Road Warrior. In the U.S. release, it was called The Road Warrior. The VHS I saw in the 90s, all the TV releases I've seen, it was The Road Warrior. But yeah, this Blu-ray, it said Mad Max 2, but it was also in a 4 to 3 aspect ratio, and I never trust anything in that ratio. Yeah, I really did wonder. I'm like, wait, do they do full screen? Which, ironically, isn't full screen anymore. I I wondered if I had this in the wrong aspect, but no, it's just the beginning. Here's the thing. Like you said last week, Arnie, yes, Mad Max became a huge deal, mostly because of this film. In the U.S., only a handful of people had seen Mad Max, so it got a new name, The Road Warrior. They wanted to set this up as a standalone film that people could see without having seen the last one. Yeah, I was wondering, you know, the concept of reboot is far too new, but I did get the sense that that's what they really wanted to do here. They wanted to de-emphasize any connective tissue to the first one because, well, maybe they thought people wouldn't like the idea of it being so low budget and just start with this one. My comparative, even though it came a few years later, was Evil Dead to Evil Dead 2. The way Evil Dead 2 was kind of the same story, a shitload more money, but the same creative team and the same star. Kind of have that going on here, only at least Evil Dead had the early days of VHS, so they kept Evil Dead 2 as the title, whereas with this, yeah, in the States here... It was just called The Road Warrior, which really led to some confusion on my part. Last week, when I was putting in that disc, I'm like, isn't part one The Road Warrior? This one's Mad Max. Which one should I be watching? But this is the film that really stuck in my memory as the beginning of Mad Max, the beginning of the Aussie cinema. I never knew about Mad Max. I knew about The Road Warrior. I knew about the guy in the hockey mask. I knew about the truck chases. Even if I hadn't seen it, this film was heavily advertised and just impacted me as a child. I remember seeing a poster in Starlog magazine of Mel Gibson walking down a road with a dog that looked like it had been spray painted red. And that is all that I knew about this movie until I watched it. Now, this is the one when I think of Mad Max, the franchise. This is it. This is the S&M, the bondage gear, Lord Humongous. This is the iconic one. Uh, Maybe some of that stuff with Tina Turner when we get to Beyond Thunderdome. But I really feel like this is what people, if you say Mad Max, this is the film they think of. It is definitely what I think of, and we'll talk about it, but my memory coming back is that this was the best of the franchise. Well, you're not alone there. That is the popular opinion. If you're only going to watch one Mad Max, this is the one you're going to watch. Will they be saying that in three weeks? I'm interested to find out. We'll see. But for now, this is it. And Mel Gibson had been doing other roles. I remember him playing Mentally Challenged and Tim. I don't know if you ever saw that movie, but he played something else. He wasn't just 
Charles Bronson or Clint Eastwood. Gallipoli with Peter Weir. He had done dramatic work and proved that he wasn't a one-trick vigilante. Really? That explains a big question I had. What the hell did he do in two years to get his name above the title? Diversify. Yet it would still be six more years before he broke big in the States with Lethal Weapon? Yeah, the People magazine cover didn't come till 85. I do have to say, he looks more like a leading man in this film. He was 21 in that first film. He doesn't look quite as menacing. When he shows up in this film, it's almost like a totally different look. I can't believe this is only two years later. He commands a presence now. Yeah, he's got gray hair. Yes. Through the work of the hairstylist, but uh, yeah. A lot of it was due to him, too. He would start, like, ripping hair out. He's like, no, this has got to look like I'm living on the road and, like, would just do these jagged cuts and do his own hair. Yeah, it is a different Mel, a more confident performance, and yeah, I would say a more confident movie. Arnie, let's get in the plot. We can talk about Road Warrior. A few years in the future, an oil crisis has led to the downfall of society, including a nuclear war. In the Australian outback, people live in makeshift camps and settlements, fighting for food, for ammo, and for gas. It's a ruthless, lawless land, and that's where Mel Gibson's ex-cop character Mad Max lives. He makes his way in his supercharged pursuit special, accompanied only by his dog, named Dog. But when Max comes across a gyro captain, played by Bruce Spence from Star Wars Episode 3, the captain trades Max vital information for his own life, and that's about a compound that actually has a working fuel pump. But by the time Max and the captain arrive, the camp is under siege by a group of assless chaps wearing gang members led by the Humongous, a hockey mask and leather speedo wearing thug. The Humongous's lieutenant is Wes, a mohawked biker who swears vengeance on the people of the camp when Wes's friend, lover, something, is killed by one of the camp's children, known only as the Feral Kid, who wields a metal, razor-sharp boomerang. Some of the gang members rape and kill a woman and beat her companion, and that man offers Max fuel in exchange for safe passage back to the camp. But the man dies before Max can be given the gas, so Max offers a new deal. The settlers want to escape their compound with their gasoline and go to the nearby beach, but have no way to transport their fuel. Max offers to bring them a semi that can haul their tanker in exchange for as much fuel as he can carry. Papagallo, the settler's leader, agrees, and Max delivers the promised rig. When Papagallo asks Max to drive their tanker, Max refuses, choosing to go his own way. But his escape from the compound is foiled by the gang. Dog is killed, and Max's car is destroyed. Max now offers to drive their tanker, and an amazing chase ensues with the feral kid hanging outside the truck killing gang members, the gyro captain firebombing gang members from the sky, and Max is driving eventually killing both the humongous and Wes in one humongous crash that causes the semi-rig to roll. But inside the tanker was just sand. It was a diversion, allowing the settlers to escape unmolested. But Max was never seen again by the settlers. He makes his own path as credits roll. So right away, I like the intro of this movie. It had something the last one lacked. In our last podcast, you guys said that people were out hunting for fuel. But that was something really downplayed that I barely caught in the first movie. Here, this opening tells us nuclear war has happened and there is no gas. People are scavenging for gas. The last film, I didn't really get that. Here, it's driven home. Yeah, there's no more cops anymore. I mean, when Mel appears, Max is no longer working for the MFP. I mean, I get the sense that there's an even greater breakdown if you're going to connect it to the first movie. And I think you're allowed because they do show clips of the wife and the kid being killed. But I get the sense that it's even more chaotic now. Yeah, I always feel like each one gets escalated and the apocalypse gets a bit worse and a bit worse every time. But yeah, this one, I don't think it's necessarily maybe the MFP aren't around anymore. I think this is a different part. They're in the outback proper where they're shooting this. There's no fields here. This is going to be all rock and dirt now. It, he's in a different part of the world now. He's traveled. He's the road warrior. I took it as, and what I read on Wikipedia, is the nuclear war took place between the last movie and this movie. Yeah, you could play it either way. Either the roads got dustier because there was no maintenance, or yeah, there had been a bomb drop. But the road conditions have not improved. When I watched these films for the first time back in 90, I remember my first time thinking that, yeah, this second one is a post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war, dystopian film, whereas the other one, even though there's a subtitle that says in the near future, takes place in modern times. The universes felt so different to me as a teenager that I completely wrote off that first Mad Max film. This was the vibe I liked. They certainly have the money to at least 
sell me this universe better this time than they did last time, where if there's still ice cream shops, things aren't that bad off. <laughs> they got professionals this time. I mean, the cinematographer, Dean Simler, will have a very long career making very diverse movies, everything from Young Guns to Paul Blart 2. The man is still working <laughs> in movies that are out right now. A great cinematographer. This was one of his earliest films. The screenplay, they've added Terry Hayes, who has written several Mel Gibson movies and Dead Calm. Yeah, it feels like they've upped their game. Not only have they gotten more money, but they've gotten people who will go on and have more impressive careers. And yet the funny thing is, yeah, they got more money. It's a bigger production. You call out the guy doing the screenplay. According to George Miller, they didn't really have much of a script. Like, he would scribble storyboards on a piece of paper, like do his own little mini comics and going, okay, guys, this is what we're filming today. This movie was filmed chronologically. So he would just like figure out, okay, this is what we're going to do today. Let me do some scribbles on a piece of paper. So the rest of the cast knows what we're going to do. So it was still a very raw production, even though there was more money involved this time. It doesn't come through. I can say that this feels like a tighter story. It feels better paced. It does not feel like people showing up going, what are we doing today, boss? I think it's a simpler story. It's not as complex. I think that last one maybe was complex because it's hard to understand with the accents because they just don't have the money and it's kind of scattered. This, this feels like a classic story to me. If you've seen Yojimbo, if you've seen Fistful of Dollars, which is a remake of Yojimbo, like this is the classic story of the anti-hero walking in, wanting to do something out of his own selfish needs and has to have a turn of heart and help the village people. Hey, it's Campbellian archetypes. I'm a Star Wars fan. I know him when I see him. I feel like there are some lags to this story. I'm not going to say it's completely without some improvised wandering, but I do feel like they get us going in much the similar way that the first one did with a really cool chase here. Uh, Mel is being pursued, I guess. He has gas. They want gas. They run you off the road and steal your gas. Haven't you seen Waterworld? I, I feel like Waterworld just totally ripped off this film. Yeah, Waterworld. I remember it being not as bad as everyone said. I'm probably going to revisit that one soon. I think it does help that Max has the interceptor. He has that badass V8 all-black car. It's Kenny, right? It's Kenny from Fast and Furious films. Isn't this Dom's Charger <laughs> with the engine coming out of the top? So much cooler than Dom's Charger. I think this is what Fast and Furious was modeling it after. Uh, I think we just watched a bunch of Fast and Furious movies, so we're making comparatives when, you know, I thought when they were ripping off the tanker, it made me feel about Fast and Furious. When they turn on the Nas here, <laughs> I think about Fast and Furious. But that doesn't mean that Fast and the Furious ripped it off. It just means that I've been watching a lot of cars lately. But I haven't been watching a lot of kangaroos. Dead kangaroos in the room. Actual, real kangaroo. Now, they didn't kill it. But they did get, I guess there's kangaroo poachers in the outback, and so they got an actual carcass to throw on the road. I was happy dog was eating well in the post-apocalyptic <laughs> future, but kangaroo kill? That's something that this Yank isn't used to. And this villain that's pursuing him, I, I called him Mohawk. I never heard his name. It's Wes, Wes I guess. Yes. But I did remember him from that terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, <laughs> yes. Commando. He's like the guy with the mustache that's like, I'm gonna get ya! Yeah, he's over the top. He feels like an extreme character. He is a much better second banana than John the Boy, I think. You needed a character with more flair here, and and they've got that. Yeah, they all got flair. They, they also don't have any seats in their ass here. Well, chaps don't. I mean, it's worth pointing out every chap you've ever seen doesn't have an ass. Yeah, usually you wear something underneath the chaps, though. Yes, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> normally you're not bare-assed in those chaps unless you're into some kind of fetish. Which they are. Yeah, the, all these films are so fetishistic. Like, yeah, they actually did go to, like, S&M clubs and bondage places, probably because it was cheap enough stuff to buy. They probably didn't get the real leather stuff, but they were just trying to buy weird stuff. And you get humongous with the hockey mask. You know, they weren't trying to do some Friday the 13th thing. That's what they were able to afford. And when they costume people went out and bought stuff, this is what they came back with. Yeah, they not only went to the S&M shops, they went to the hockey shops. I noticed a lot of hockey gear used as costuming here. American football pads yeah wearing a hockey mask two years before jason i think jason stole his look okay i didn't realize friday the 13th came out after this well friday the 13th came out before but jason wouldn't get his mask until part three ah uh, that's right that jason came later in the sequels and and the hockey mask later still okay and later when we get the colonist, I feel like they might have been working out with Jane Fonda, too. I mean, there's an aerobicized yes. punk aesthetic that it's both of the time and a parody of the time. I really appreciate that, actually. It is both Michael Jackson's Beat It and a, a mockery <laughs> of that whole thing. It's Weird Al's Eat It, too. 
But yeah, you bring up the sexual charge of this villain here. He's got this androgynous kid on the back of his bike. And at some point, this companion is going to be killed. That's going to be the revenge plot that's driving Wes for the rest of this movie. Kind of surprising. Usually, homosexual themes did not come up in mainstream movies in the early 80s. But yeah, I think we're to think of the villains here as being a gay clique out to thwart the colonists and the children. Lord Humongous is always just ranting in his megaphone. He will call this gang his gay berserkers. Mm. The thing is, I read an interview with the actor who played Wes, and they're like, you know, Wes has kind of become this like gay icon in the underground. How do you feel about that? And he's like, that's great. He's like, the actual backstory to this companion that's going to be killed, that was a young man that he raised as a child. And that's why he gets so sad. Now, that whole subplot got cut out of the film. And so, yeah, the way it plays... It does feel more like a lover than someone that he brought up since a child. And I could go either way. I mean, it's subtext. It's there. The assless chaps certainly help me to believe. It's the bondage gear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the way that it's played, I'm like, were they just really good friends? Were they lovers? It plays odd. And yeah, the way this film is, and especially in the 21st century where homosexuality is more open and I see it more in media, I take this as a gay subplot. More to the point, I think it's part of the story. I mean, I think literally they're the old world. They're the part that's all male aggression, fighting for oil. Our heroes are going to be families. It's going to have women. It's going to have children. It's going to have people that are looking for salvation, looking to move away from the oil. I think it's done on purpose. And I know, again, there's criticism because, oh, if these are homosexual marauders, well, why are they evil? That framing them in a bad light. I, for me, as a young man watching this, I, I, it was something that was fascinating. It, maybe it normalized homosexuality for me because I didn't see it as something threatening. I thought it was cool. So for me, it may perhaps had the opposite effect than some of the critics claim that it has. I thought it was something cool and neat, and I was drawn to that, to that image. Maybe not that lifestyle, but I didn't have a problem with these bad guys being that way. Well, later on, we're going to see these gang do another rape. I mean, they raped last time and this gang rapes this time. And I noticed certain gang members seemed completely uninterested in the rape and other gang members seemed very interested in their female victims. So I don't take them all as on the same level of the Kinsey scale. They're, <laughs> they're a diverse group of marauders. Yeah, there's going to be some straight sex going on when they rip that 10 off and there's a couple doing it. Oh, you're right. You're right. There was a woman. I'm like, I don't think I saw a woman in this tribe. There's very few. There are. You're right. But they're there. I forgot about that. It's a joke, basically. At some yes. point, Mel flies by and the tent goes up and they're having sex. That felt like an insert that was done later when they're like, oh, wow, these marauders all look really gay. Humongous, though. I really feel like they have the most charming one yet. You guys like Toe Cutter, but this feels like Bane done right, right? You got this huge <laughs> muscle guy in a mask. Everything about it says masculine, intimidating, scary. And yet when he gets the microphone, it's like he's eloquent. He could read books on tape or something. Now, Humongous, I found something very interesting I read on Wiki. And Jacob, maybe you can enlighten me. I read that, like, this was at one point in some draft going to be Goose. And that's why he was masked and burned. I didn't hear that. You know, George Miller does a commentary for this film. He didn't do it for the first Mad Max film, but he comes back for The Road Warrior to talk about it. It's a very technical commentary, though. They talk a lot about the shots and how they did stunts. He doesn't... I wanted to know more about his thinking with all these different characters. And we do see at one point Lord Humongous's head, like, pulsating and veins popping out. I guess it's because of the fallout. He never says anything that that was supposed to be Goose coming back. Goose would have done quite a bit of working out between films. This guy is huge. He's actually a Swedish bodybuilder under the mask. But I do feel like, again, I wish George Miller talked more about it because there's these themes. Toe Cutter had all these religious themes, the way he was blessing bikers and this baptismal type scene in the ocean. Here, Lord Humongous, at first he's the Lord, and he's he speaks almost in scripture. None are without sin. And there's something going on here with all this religious imagery or, that they're speaking. Yeah, I like the humongous. Both movies, it took me a little while to figure out who's the leader of this gang and who's the lieutenant. I mean, we meet this other guy, Wes, first, and because of the mohawk, and he's kind of the alpha male, you know, he's very dominant. He gives a lot of orders. I thought he was in charge, but then he's just like the Darth Vader to humongous's emperor. It's a lot of fun in this gang, but of course, we're not really introduced to the 
them that much, we don't see the humongous for a while, we're going to spend a little bit more time with Max and seeing his hunt for gasoline and he encounters another guy. Very few people in this movie have names. Yeah, the gyro captain. Yeah, the gyro captain. That's all we know him as. The toughest female in this film. No name. Warrior woman. The feral boy. <laughs> yeah, no names for anyone. It helps with the feeling of breakdown. It makes it harder to talk about, but yeah, you get the sense that, yeah, this is a society that doesn't have laws and rules. Like People just don't have names. They're just running around. It's amazing to me how often we've talked about Bruce Spence lately. I guess all these movies filmed down in New Zealand and Australia. This is that train man from the Matrix sequels. Yeah, he oh. had a scene in Lord of the Rings that was cut in the final film. We'll talk about him when we get to Star Wars this fall. We might not talk about him. He's really minor, but <laughs> I know true. him from there. His costume is so different. Like, everything's black and white. He's got, like, purple shoes and a purple scarf, yellow pants. I mean, Bruce Spence is so odd-looking already. They really really went to town with his costuming here. I kept wondering what the intention of him might be. I mean, he's a threat at first. Mel Gibson is trying to peel away his poisonous snakes so he can get his gasoline, and this guy actually gets the upper hand. For a couple minutes there, he's got Mel under the barrel of his gun, and even know that the car's booby-trapped, and it seems like this could go badly for Max. Fortunately, he still has the dog. Yeah, he gets through every one of Max's little tricks, and I did wonder, I mean, I remembered very little about him in this movie. He did feel like he'd be a sidekick character. He's kind of goofy. He's talkative, whereas Max is laconic. I think that's a good pairing. You need to have somebody talking on screen. But I didn't quite know how this would play. And yeah, the dog takes him down. And so he leads them to the settlement where they have a working oil refinery. And kind of a interesting thing. I was confused even watching it this time whose refinery it was. I thought the gyro captain was taking him to see like an oil refinery refinery owned by the humongous or something. It didn't click for me that there's only one settlement and one oil refinery in this whole movie. Yeah, there's just the one settlement. There's these people that are running it, protecting it, and the dogs of war, Lord Humongous's gang, has discovered it, and they want the oil because they got cool cars that they got to fuel up. A standoff. I mean, if you couldn't tell already by the way this is shot and photographed, classic Western stuff here. I mean, the villains are literally circling. When they finally get in, they're like, arrows and slitting throats and all of this. This is a Western. I didn't really get that from Mad Max last week. It felt very much in keeping with a lot of vigilante movies or car chase movies. But this, there's no other way for me to think about it than like, yeah, these are the stagecoaches. The humongous gang is the Indians and Mel Gibson is, yeah, Shane going to ride in and be redeemed by saving the townsfolk. And even the way it's shot, again, there's no CGI to add dust trails. You get these long shots of Max and the gyro captain watching this town. Just all the cars roaming around and those dust trails and the light. Again, there are some beautiful photography here that they just had to hope the wind was blowing the right way and the light was at the right place and these dust trails would work because you couldn't add any of this in CGI like you could now. I mean, just some great shots. It looks like a Western. You're watching those Buffalo Rome way far away. Yeah, no doubt about it. This is a great looking movie. The visuals are far better. I mean, all of my complaints about the way that it's put together, well, except for the music, They've all been corrected in this version. Same composer, yeah. Terrible still. I didn't have a problem with the music this time. Last time, I barely noticed it. This time, I didn't notice it. So that is a plus to me. But yeah, I guess I just had a little trouble with the geography of this movie. Because when he gets up to this vantage point and he's spying on everything, you see the marauders going all around. I thought they were just coming and going freely because it was their camp. I didn't realize right away that they were attacking it. And then, yeah, soon enough, a car is driving away and the marauders attack it and rape and pillage again like they did last film. And yet Max has no problem recovering one of the bodies and just walking right up to the gate. There was multiple cars that left. So I guess that drew all the marauders off. They've all split up. But again, another horrific rape scene. We see a lot more of it this time. We see the clothes torn off. We see a man mount the woman. And what's really telling to me is Bruce Spence's reactions. It's funny at first. He pulls out this comic 
comically long telescope to watch what the marauders are doing and he's kind of got this smile on his face as he's watching this carnage and it slowly fades away and becomes this look of horror it, it's very effective to me it tells you he's not a bad guy i think that's important to do with bruce spence is to say he's not a total scumbag even though he pulled a gun on max yeah i agree it's the starting the change it's hard to know when this aviator character does kind of have his turn i guess he is the one that sort of takes to a blonde when they finally get in there he's the one that's like oh i could go with these people for max he never wants to be a part of this colony i don't think ever he's there for the gasoline he's very upfront about that but at some point there is a turn where he feels more with their cause even though he doesn't ultimately want to hang with them you know there is one moment there's one character that i think max is drawn to and it's the feral kid who has a joe dirt level mullet always freaked me <laughs> out but there's that little music box that max finds at the beginning of the film that plays happy birthday i think that kind of brings him back to his humanity i think music box i think little children it's almost like he's remembering his own child and there is that slight connection he has with the feral boy but even that ends up not being strong enough to keep him there yeah, what about Max? I mean, when we saw him last movie, he was avenging his wife and child. His child was dead. His friend on the force was a burnt husk. His wife was in critical condition. Here, they show some of that in flashback. Max gets a little bit taunted. You know, what happened? Did you lose somebody? We've all lost people. But are we to say it that his wife and child and friend are all in the grave and he is now so damaged by these losses that he is completely unable and undesiring of human connection? I think that the dog is the only tether he has to that former life. Yes. Well, that's a different dog. The other dog died. No, I know. I just, a dog. <laughs> he didn't even bother to rename it. It's just dog, apparently. But yeah, I think that that is the only way that we feel that he has caring in him. I think he's gone mad. I think what he was afraid of in the last movie has taken place. He literally just lives from tank to tank, trying to fill up on gasoline. Yeah, he has lost his humanity. At one point, he's literally eating dog food. He's not e even eating human food anymore. And Bruce Spence doesn't even get to eat the cleanup on it. The dog gets seconds on it, and then Bruce Spence has to lick up whatever's remaining after him and the dog. I do feel like he wants nothing to do with humanity. Civilization has let him down, and he is the lone wolf now. He wants to get his gas. You know, when he brings that wounded refinery citizen back, they're like, what happened? Where are the other people? And he's like, you could fill up my car. That's the only deal. I don't care about anything else. Fill up my car so I could leave. It sells us on the mad in the way that the movie last week, Mad Max, did not. But I can't say he becomes much more endearing. I mean, the surprise to me is that we always see characters that are self-serving come into a scenario and by the end or the middle, they start to warm up. Certainly when they meet women and kids and see a society that's prospered, they can't help but be charmed. But I don't think Mel is ever charmed. And I think that's why I continue to feel isolated from this main character. Mad Max continues to be the least interesting thing in the Mad Max franchise. No, I think Jacob's got it right. It's the kid, the feral kid who both kills Wes's friend and is the one who Max sees something in. Maybe because of his own Sprago. Maybe it's just because they are both so damaged by what society has become that they're all about survival and killing. But that kid and Max make a connection. Oh, they make a connection, but it's not a permanent one. I mean, it's worth pointing out, this movie is narrated by the feral kid. He only grunts when we see him here in the present, but all the voiceover work at the beginning at the end is of this kid grown up and presumably become educated and more civilized. He's going to lead the northern tribes. Yeah, he thinks of this character in a heroic way, but I don't get the sense that he wanted to be adopted or that Mel was interested in raising him. The feral kid, were either of you thinking of Joe from The Stand? No. That's what I was reminded of, is Stephen King's character of a boy who, in the post-apocalypse, could only grunt and wanted to kill. Oh, that's right. There was a feral kid in that. Well, you did read The Stand 900 times. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, they leave the killing to him. I, he's got a cool boomerang, so why not? But I do think it's interesting that Mel has never really, by his own hand, killed anyone, right? That he just keeps making people drive into cars or giving them the choice to cut off their legs to escape. But he himself does not kill. And here, the death that gets Wes so angry at him is not by his hand. 
Wes goes crazy and he tries to get Humongous to attack the refinery right away. I think that is the danger. Like, they've been circling around. We do want to feel something get escalated. When is this attack going to happen? I feel like Wes is the one. He kind of goes rogue for a while. We're going to see Max. He's going to get his gas. He's going to bring that tanker in and leave. And it's going to be Wes going off on his own, disobeying rules to go after Max. Oh, yeah. Humongous, like, puts him in a sleeper hole for some point. I'm like, oh, it's a wrestling movie. You definitely get the sense that, yeah, he thinks that Wes is a a loose cannon, that he could be a danger to the operation. This, again, even though he's this buff, threatening character, he's got patience. He's eloquent. He's like, oh, no, I'll give you a day. I really mean it. Give them a day. I mean, he is more than fair, really. (laughs) More than fair. I will kill you all if you don't (laughs) leave your oil that you've worked for. But if you leave, I'll let you go. Okay, more than fair. If you believe him, I'm not sure that I believed Humongous in that regard. I actually do kind of believe him. Yeah, I think that he stands nothing to gain by killing them, right? I mean, I sense him as being a very pragmatic, logical character. He just, he literally wants the refinery. That's it. He had those people killed and attacked because they were trying to go out and pass the domain and get a tanker to move the oil that he wanted. So, again, it it makes you wonder, why didn't they play ball? Why couldn't they work out a system? Why couldn't they be his supplier? They're trying to get 2,000 miles. Kilometers. 2,000 some unit of measurement somewhere else where there's more of a civilization. They happen to be stuck here. They need all this oil to fuel that trip. So I don't think they want to share it. They want to get away. And these marauders, they don't want to play nice. I think they would turn on them eventually and toy with them. Like we saw Toe Cutters gang toy with the town folk and the town they were in. Well, I guess that's the only thing that makes sense. Otherwise, yeah, we'll leave you the refinery and we'll take enough gas to get out of here. I mean, it seems like they could come to a negotiable peace with Humongous. He's just seems logical. Maybe we did need one scene of Humongous going back on his word and really killing someone, because I got the sense that you could trust this guy. Yeah, even when that boomerang, I love the scene, like the boomerang's thrown and that toady goes to catch it, it slices off his fingers and Lord Humongous just like, come on guys, stop playing grab ass. I love that boomerang. Something about boomerangs and I think this movie caused it. When I was 10, I thought there was nothing cooler than a ninja star, but when I was 8, <laughs> nothing was more deadly than a boomerang. <laughs> And they did just put that in there kind of as a joke because, oh, it's Australia. We got to have a boomerang. Yeah, but a razor tip boomerang. Although, unfortunately, there were just some obvious camera speed ups when the feral kid is catching it. But this is the only scene of the boomerang. I remembered it being a much bigger part. The feral kid continues to attack and be brutal, but he's got this kick-ass trademark weapon. And this is the only time we really get to see it used. The big problem for the people at the refinery is they have all this oil. They got oil to make the trip. They got a tanker. They don't have a rig to pull the tanker. They got no way to get it out of there. Right. That's what they were trying to get when they were absconded. That's what Mel can do for them. That's the one thing that he can promise. You can give me gasoline if I can deliver you that front of the semi. And he does it pretty easily. It's funny how easy it is when you have a flying contraption to get around and get what you need. I do like that he hunts down the gyro captain. Like last time we saw him, he was up on that ledge overlooking the refinery and it locked up and at this point, he's like dragging a log that he's chained up to. And so Mel catches up to him, makes him carry all these oil tankers. And, you know, he's the he's the bottom bitch again. And it's funny because the captain's always like, oh, we're partners. We're, we got to stick together. He wants something more than Mel does. Mel, I don't see teaming up with this guy, but he thinks it's going to happen. Yeah, he knows he's a good sidekick and not a leading man. Max is obviously the one who's going to make things happen. I mean, what was the gyro captain doing before then? He was literally laying in the sand just waiting for unsuspecting people to fall prey to his snake. It works. They get back to the gyro and there's a dead guy there. Yeah, I like that it did work. But I feel like he gets committed. I understand why he gets committed with the group. He meets some blonde. He spends the second act of act two trying to convince her to go off with him. He doesn't want to be with everybody. But, you know, he's lonely. His home is pretty empty. If all it is is snakes and sand, then you can imagine why he would consider going on the caravan with the refinery folk. But Max, he really is just going to bring that semi in and leave. 
Yeah, that's the deal. He still hasn't had that turn of heart. You're wondering when is he going to have the turn of heart? See, oh, these lowly village people aren't going to be able to do it. I mean, the mechanic for this village, he's handicapped. He's on this rig. He can't use his legs. And so they swing him around on this rig. This is not a village that is ready to take on a bunch of marauders. But Max just wants to bring in that tanker and that's it. And it goes badly. I mean, again, I think, well, you know, he'll have a change of heart because he selfishly leaves the next morning morning and that's when he's ambushed Waz and his crew knock him off the road yeah i was surprised he lost his car i mean that was his trademark car it came from the first film i kind of figured we'd see it in the third film no i mean he loses his car he loses his dog i don't know what it is about this director how the fuck can you direct happy feet yet you kill these dogs george miller what are you doing they didn't really kill him but yes it's upsetting to the audience when the dogs die my question is wes i had the sense that he was overlooking this whole thing when that car you know max has booby trapped his car so if you try to mess with the tanks in them they'll blow up so we get this big fireball and wes is just like oh i guess he blew up did he not see that he was hiding out somewhere else does he not care does he figure if he doesn't have his car he can't follow him so it doesn't matter i think he assumes everyone is dead and i would probably too it's a long valley to climb down to go check for sure even if max isn't dead he has no chance of survival if someone weren't coming by to pick him up but gyro king is going to do it and they do this great effect mel's like crawling on his stomach and they do this like weird double exposure thing so everything's just a little bit off the way the wrinkles in his jacket moves it's just i don't it disorients you a little bit it's a nice little effect to just show what mel's going through after he's dealt with this explosion and being through this wreck Speaking with that effect, when Mel drove the big rig in initially to deliver it and get his gas, Wes kind of breaks into the camp and there's a big fight. He does a headbutt and the screen flashes. Were they just covering like they didn't actually make contact and it was pretty obvious? So they just flashed the screen so the audience didn't see? I don't know. I just took it like if you've been headbutted, it's not great. Blinding white light you see when you get headbutted. It is a weird cut and it's very obvious. Yeah, the first movie had these kinds of subjective editing choices as well, like, you know, blurry vision and what have you. But I feel like this movie, it does it better. It has a great look, but I don't feel like as we're getting through act two that there's a lot more story than the last one. I do feel like this movie is kind of coasting on the cool look and the vibe of it. No, I think there's so much more. At least it's continual action. This thing is constantly moving. There's no trips to the beach and long walks through the forest with this film. There's no ice cream cones. There's long walks. There's several long walks, Arnie. It's not wall-to-wall explosions. I mean, there's a lot of staring at horizons and just, yeah, slow movement kind of moments. They're great looking. I mean, yeah, watching a long shot in which, yeah, you're watching those marauders circle a refinery. It's so beautiful. You don't mind it goes on for two minutes, but it does go (laughs) on for two minutes. I didn't notice any of that. To me, this movie kept going very plot-driven. Whereas the last movie, I knew it was going to happen because I'd seen it before, and it's just blazingly obvious. In this one, it feels like the plot is constantly moving. Max is in the refinery and offers them the rig. Max is getting the rig. Max comes back. He refuses the job of driving it, so he tries to escape. Max is injured. Max has to come back and heal. Now Max is driving the rig. This thing moves fast to me. It's about the same length as the last one. It feels half the time. I don't know that these are great plot twists, though. I mean, what you're talking about is Mel Gibson keeps leaving and then coming back and leaving and coming back. I wanted to know what's going to get him to commit, and the answer is nothing. Yeah, you're saying plot twist? I don't feel there's any twist to this plot. This plot is as flat and as smooth as the roads they're going to drive over. I didn't say twist. I just said it was following the plot. Yeah, so we're going to have some thin story elements. We're going to have one character moment where, oh, Max, you don't think anyone else has lost anyone, and, you know, why are you so selfish? It has that moment. It's not much of a moment to convince me why Max would become the driver of the rig, I guess because he lost his car and he wants to drive something. Yeah, I actually think that's it. He agrees to do the job because then he'll have something with wheels again. What else is he going to do? Hitchhike? I took it as, again, revenge. Last movie, he lost his wife. This movie, he loses his dog, and now he wants them to pay. Or maybe it's because he lost his car. They hurt him. He wants to hurt them back. Does he know the tanker is full of nothing but dirt? Does he know he's a diversion? 
I take it that he does. The way they play it, I think they have to play it like it's a mystery. I have to think he knows what the plan is. I take it entirely different, and I don't think it makes any sense if he knows. The look on his face at the end when he sees what's seeping out there, he's wondering why he didn't explode. I think that he was tricked, and more to the point, they cruelly leave him behind. They all come back, they get the gyro captain, they get the feral boy, and Max, he's not going to go with them. But no, they came back for the feral kid. The feral kid was with him the whole time on that tanker. I think Max could have gone with them. Max chose to not go with them. And Max is smart enough to say, hey, fill it with dirt. Even though I find that inscrutable, I can say that sandwiched in between those things is one hell of a chase. And what the last movie could never pull off, this movie is doing better. The plot is not any better, really, in this movie than last time. But because they have the budget and the scale, they can give you so much more here in the climax than they ever could dream. Yeah, you want to talk about chases. Jacob, last time you told me that opening chase of the last movie was better than anything in Fast and Furious. I still disagree, but this one is as good as anything in the Fast and Furious. From the moment that refinery blows up, what an awesome fucking explosion that is. You had to warn the airport so no planes would fly over because debris was going so high. <laughs> yeah, this entire climax is really exciting. Some of the fun is just watching the sky, watching the continuity because they decide to throw out continuity. They just need to get this shot. The sky is clear. The sky is cloudy. It's about to rain. I mean, this was shot in the winter and all of the actors are actually freezing while filming this. I did wonder when daylight came. It's like, it's night, it's day. I was like, well, uh, whatever. Yeah, they shot with what they had to shoot with. I didn't really notice it. It wasn't a problem for me. I mean, I guess, you know, from shot to shot, there wasn't seamlessness. But I think this chase scene is great. I mean, as someone that can be very action movie challenged, I was really into this. And again, I want to remind you, I'm not into Mad Max. I don't care about his mission. And really, these people aren't that interesting either. I think they're deluded. They're holding up postcards of bikini babes and saying, we're going to paradise. Well, we know that doesn't exist, right? I mean, they're going to get there and it's going to be sewage and bones but it doesn't matter because this chase is so kinetic it really doesn't matter that the plot hasn't involved me the plot is very basic i can't say that i'm deep into it because it is so basic but it is perfectly serviceable especially when yeah mixed with these production values and mel he's gotten better i like max in this film i actually give a damn about him as my hero that i didn't in the last film and I'm impressed to see that women are actually taking part in the action. That, you know, on top of the rig, not only is Mel fighting these bad guys, but you got this woman here. The guy's on fire, and she's the one kicking ass. It's the handicapped guy, so I guess he can't feel his legs on fire. And what's interesting here, this chase, it becomes a silent film, which you may really prefer if you don't like the score, like Stuart and I. But there's almost no dialogue during this entire chase. It is just carnage. Truthfully, this film is close to a silent film. Coming back, I couldn't remember if there were more than like 10 lines of dialogue. There are more than 10, but really, this is a film that's all about facial expressions and sound effects, not about what's being said. And I don't have a problem with that. I feel like with a certain medium, you work to the strengths. And I read George Miller with this new Mad Max film. He wants a theater full of Japanese people to watch it and not have to turn on the subtitles. He really wants this visual presence where that is the language of the film. The story, not so much, but a different kind of language that we can all understand, a visual one. Yeah, well, it puts the pressure on. I mean, if that's the way you're going to go, I'm always a little disappointed because I like a good story, but it means you really do need to wow me. So few movies really can do that, but here I am wowed. Last week, not so wowed. I was wowed on the budget that they had, but this one is genuine. Anyone would be impressed. These effects hold up. These chases are solid. Everyone should see this climax. Yeah, I love the fact, you know, the warrior woman and... I, the handicapped guy. I don't even know what his name is in this film. But they've died. And it, the way, like the warrior woman, she's just hanging from this tanker that's been like wrapped in barbed wire. It's very barbaric looking. And eventually their bodies are pulled down and you see some dummies get shoved underneath the tanker. But yeah, you have the feral boy. He's got to go. Max is like, just climb up on the hood where there's some shotgun shells. I need some of those. Like, send the kid onto the hood to get the ammunition. A very dangerous stunt. 
But bullets are just as rare a commodity as gasoline here. I, I got that sense that, yeah. I mean, I've said Mel hasn't been killing anyone. I forget that every now and then he does get a shot off with his sawed-off shotgun. But by and large... And we see Humongous with a gun, and yeah, those bullets, he'll only put like one bullet in to fire. There, there's rationing all over the place. I'm surprised they're not having water problems. We certainly are here in California. But the reason why the kid has to climb out on the hood is there are no other bullets. That is literally, that's the difference between him having a weapon or not. And the bad guys keep coming. They keep climbing on the vehicle. And Wes is hanging on the hood. In case you thought that he had died, and I really didn't, he pops up here when the kid's trying to get the last bullet. I thought it was a push that Max is like telling the kid, hey, climb out on the hood versus telling the kid don't climb out on the hood and having the kid do it on his own. You know, most movies, I think you'd see that later dynamic where the kid's like, no, no, I can do it. And the adult saying, uh, be careful here. Max is like, no, get out there, get the bullet. So he's still a Machiavellian son of a bitch. But yeah, Wes is out there. Humongous is out there. I never expected, and I didn't remember, they are taken out, smooshed together in the same accident. I kind of like that. It's efficient. They've been doing that the whole movie. I love the fact that when they took some of the colonist prisoners, they strapped them to their fenders so that, like, yeah, when we get into a wreck, you're going to be the ones to go down. We'll crucify you and turn you into a hood ornament. And they were there for the rest of the fucking movie, which I love. It wasn't just one scene of them. That car keeps coming back, and they're still tied there. <laughs> what a way to go. And besides Mel Gibson, the only returning part of the cast from Mad Max, Benno, he's one of those guys strapped to the car, that same actor. Same character or just the same actor? Just the same actor, different okay. character. We're going to see that with Beyond Thunderdome too when Bruce Spence returns playing someone totally different. But yeah, the way those two guys, when they're strapped to the car, at one point, like Max hits the brakes and those two, they just use watermelons. Those two bodies slam. You see these watermelons like explode all over the back of that car. These are R-rated movies, yes? Yes. Yes. All the tits and rape, of course. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. And yet it doesn't have that Vorhoven ultraviolent sleaze. You know what I mean? It is a shade different from RoboCop. Well, RoboCop almost got an X, so. It, yeah, I guess so. But it, this could almost, if there were a PG-13 back in 1982 when this came out, this could maybe get that. But you're right. When you're dealing with sexual violence, probably not. I even understand that for U.S. cinemas to give it an R, they had to cut some stuff out of this. And because it was 1981, that's been lost to the annals of history now. They can't make the unrated cut. Hmm. Maybe that's why The Flash was. I mean, I know certain countries have weirdness about, like, nunchucks. Maybe headbutts were considered <laughs> X-rated violence. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior? Jacob? Obviously, we have more money here, and I feel like Mel Gibson, who is a non-entity to me in that last film, he does become something here. He, he's he got a different look to him. He looks tougher. He doesn't have this story arc he's trying to pull off here. He's the anti-hero that walks in, and just, yeah, I guess he has a little bit of an arc. Will he decide to help this town? Sure, he does. But this is a story I've seen before. I've seen it in Westerns. I've seen it in Samurai films. But now I'm seeing it as a post-apocalyptic sci-fi osploitation film. And it's all about the flavor. I, I don't mind eating that, the same cut of meat. Give it a little bit of a different flavor. Here, I love the flavor. I love Lord Humongous. I love the Dogs of War. Just uh, the, the crazy, the Mohawks and the, the S&M and the Bondage. It's just such a different vision of the future than I think you would expect to see from, from anything else. I, I don't know if anyone's seen this kind of stuff before. And, you know, this simple plot, yeah, very simple plot. It, it allows action to happen. And it's not just explosions, just not cars wrecking into each other. There's kind of a progression to the action and a reason behind it. It's not a strong reason, but hey, we got to get a rig down into this town. and That's going to cause a big chase and shooting them up and smashing cars together. Sure. Great. Now we're going to have this other race. Like it finds reasons to do this. It's got some small character moments. And yeah, it's a strong recommend. Another strong recommend for the Road Warrior. Stewart. 
I'm still waiting to love this franchise. I want to. I feel like it's coming. I feel like the last film could be the greatest. When I see the trailers, I'm so excited. Here's the thing. This movie has style galore. You're right. Nothing else out in 1982 would have been anything like this. But so many movies have copied its style. I can't tell you how many post-apocalyptic movies where people went out to the California desert, wrapped a carpet around them, and threw, you know, slingshots at each other that have sat through USA Up All Night style. (laughs) And here, it has been diminished over time by the copycats. Keep in mind, this is my first viewing, and 20 years of copycats have come and gone that I've seen. Waterworld, yeah. I mean, they're, they're there, so when there isn't a story to hold on to, When it is just the visual, I do feel like that can be taken from you. The power of those visuals can be robbed over time. Which is not to say that isn't a spectacular-looking movie, and I recommend. People should go back and see this, but I want to keep expectations in check. I don't think this is a great sci-fi story. I don't think this is a great satire. I don't think this is a great character piece for Mel Gibson. It's one and only greatness is its visuals. That stuff is tremendous, but as a film experience, it's a recommend, but I'm still not feeling it strongly. I'm still waiting to love it as much as you, Jacob. I know it's got to happen one day, maybe next week, but so far, mildish green arrow. And I love this, I think, as much as you do, Jacob. I really enjoy this film. It was such a joy to revisit it. It's visuals, it's entire sense, this punk aesthetic that came out in this film. And yeah, I'd seen the copycats too. I saw them first. I mean, I think that Max Headroom, the entire TV show, based a lot of its own aesthetic on this. The 15 minutes into the future, the Australian punks that came out in that series, including one of the actors from here was in that series. I mean, it inspired some very enjoyable and some very up all night type of things in the 80s. But man, from the callback in weird science to so many things. This has been a part of the aesthetic I've grown up with. But here is the original. And unlike you, Stuart, I don't feel this has been watered down. I feel like here we're getting the pure essence of what all the copycats were. And I'm still able to enjoy that contact high off of the uncut originality here. The car chases are Great. You know, we, you gave me shit for using that term for fast and furious so often, but here, both of them, the beginning, the end, and the one in the middle where Max is back in his car. Great stuff. But that last one is phenomenal. I mean, just 15 minutes of outright Carmageddon going on. It is just amazing stuff. I love the bad guys with the metal hands and all the things they have going on, that claw going into Gibson. And I'm not a fan of Westerns, as I've called out. And I know this is a Western story, but you add a sci-fi kind of motif to it, and I really like it, including the twist at the end with the dirt. No, this is a fun-as-hell movie. I think anyone can enjoy it. It's a strong recommend. I hope that another film of this franchise can even comes within a stone's throw of this one, be it Thunderdome or Fury Road. I think this is a high bar that I don't know that another film can meet. You don't think they can improve the story? I don't give a shit if I'm having this much fun. (laughs) Okay, so let's be clear. Everyone here is saying what's great about this is the style and the spirit by which they make the chase. But nobody thinks this is great sci-fi, right? Nobody thinks this is like a great satire. No, I think this is great sci-fi because of its vision of a post-apocalyptic dystopian society. To me, that is great sci-fi. The plot is very rote. I've seen this plot a million times, but I don't care that I've seen it a million times. Star Wars is a fairy tale. That doesn't mean it's not a great movie. We'll talk about that later this year. But this entire thing is an escape from a convoy while being attacked. Okay, Uh, yes, you could improve it, but can you make it as exciting is my question. I am interested to see how Stewart responds to Thunderdome because I think George Miller realized, uh, are we just going to do another chase film? And he really tried to expand this Mad Max universe and give even more depth 
to what I would say the sci-fi elements are with this dystopian future. And that's one of the things I like about that one. It just begins to world build, and we're going to move away from the chases. We're going to get a big chase in it, of course, because it's a Mad Max film. But I, I think you'll start seeing those elements that you're wanting, Stuart, in that film. Okay, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I want to keep in mind, it's been two Green Arrows. I just thought there was more sci-fi here. And I, what I'm really getting is these are exploitation flicks with great stunts. And my memory of Thunderdome is not a positive one. It's I, I remember it more fondly than I remembered The Road Warrior, and I was happily surprised there. But Thunderdome, I remember thinking it was going to be the best. It had Tina Turner. I don't know why those two were not mutually exclusive (laughs) in my mind, but in fact, a correlation. But the dome, the battles, Master Blaster. And when I finally saw it, I was like, it just lacked the purity of this Road Warrior film. It just felt like it was trying too hard. To me, if this is pitch black, the next one was Chronicles of Riddick. From my memory... But we will find out when we return in two weeks, and I have recovered from my coma because, guys, tomorrow I begin my own Road Warrior. I'm driving five hours, not in a convoy, but with Alex, one of our editors, to then sit for 11 Marvel movies ending with Age of Ultron. Maybe sleep deprivation will make some of those movies better. I mean, I can't imagine sitting through them all again. I get hitting the good ones. I mean, I'm going to go back and see some of the ones. I I don't remember The Avengers. I saw it once in theaters when it came out three years ago. So I'm going to go back and watch that one. I might watch a couple other. What would be another one to do? I would say if you're just cramming for the finals. Yes, that's all I want to do. Avengers. Yeah. Iron Man 3. Mm, may not probably not nope i think you should because i think it's gonna play in okay captain america 2 no problem and then avengers 2 that would be if you're cramming for the finals oh good okay well then that's what i'll do no guardians in there for you i might go back and watch that just to settle old scores but maybe i was too harsh on it i mean i'm always open to reevaluate but yeah i have no desire and thor 2 it gets worse and worse the more i think about it My problem is if I did decide to sleep through the night, that's when they're showing Cap 1, Thor 1, and Avengers 1 starts at 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) The movies I would choose to sleep through, Marvel's what I would call their worst year, the 2013 Iron Man 3, Thor 2 year. Yeah, that's like mid-afternoon, so I'm in. Follow me, the Arnie C on Twitter. I'm going to, I'm not live tweeting. I mean, I've reviewed those movies, but I will provide status updates as to my mental state. (laughs) I will be following that closely. And then we will be back here next Tuesday after I have slept like Rip Van Winkle to recover. And then we've reviewed Avengers Age of Ultron. And somehow from the movie theater, I will be posting Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for our silver level donors. That's this Friday's bonus review for those who donate $10 or more. That's right. You got to give it to the donors. We're going to have a show out for you Friday, even though none of you will listen to it because you're all going to Avengers on Friday. First show you can. It'll be there for you on Saturday. (laughs) So all the details, if you haven't donated yet, just click the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And thank you for your donations. And now we live on only in your memories. There's been too much violence, too much pain. Just walk away, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mad Max Movie Retrospective. Where is she taking them? I want them back! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mad Max review, culminating with the review of the new film Mad Max Fury Road. We're going to stay here, and we're going to live a long time, and we're going to be thankful Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Blade Runner, Minority Report, the RoboCop series, and more. Want to get through this? Let's go! 
You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is my family. I'm not going to leave these people. I'm staying. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. Well, there was despair, and there's hope. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. I got skills, I can trade them. Sorry, the brothel's full. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Anything you say, anything I say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, Alex, and Arnie. Up to my armpits and blood and shit. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. What's a little fallout, huh? Have a nice day! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've seen it, you've heard it, and you're still asking questions. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, but what does that mean? And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. We travelled far beyond the reach of men and machines. And the road warrior, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. Accompanied only by his dog, named Dog. Is it? Yes. Yep. <laughs> I couldn't find the name. I kept waiting for it. <laughs> you looked too hard. <laughs> Max is no longer working for the M MTP? Is that what it was called? Main Force MFP. <laughs> and I have maybe a potential plane. I'm not sure what that is. Chopper? It's a gyro. Is it a gyro? It could be. It actually could. It's a Bruce Spence. The funny thing is, when I was looking through the credits, I couldn't find the name of the pilot. I'm like, where's the aviator? Where's the aviator? Who's this guy making the Euros? Like, I had no <laughs> idea. Like, I don't remember that. Euro scene. captain? <laughs> is he part of the catering? <laughs> that would be a cool Greek store. Where are you getting dinner? <laughs> the Euro captain. I missed that part. <laughs> Yeah, Waterworld. I remember it being not as bad as everyone said. I'm probably going to revisit that one soon. Oddly enough, never saw a Mad Max movie before <laughs> now, but saw Waterworld twice. <laughs> <laughs> we are supposed to like The Aviator, but it it comes at for some Arnie point. For Arnie, never. Oh, you're talking about this film. Wait, for who? <laughs> the Aviator. <laughs> The Aviator, the Martin Scorsese. Oh, film. okay. No, yeah, I, okay. Didn't understand. <laughs> the way of the future. The way of the future. <laughs> Some people don't know. I've seen people go into Greek restaurants. I'll have the gyro. <laughs>